Episode 5 of Series 2 of this Hay Festival podcast focuses on climate crisis in the time of coronavirus. We're going to hear from Christiana Figueres, Tom Rivet Karnak, Nick Stern and Gabriel Walker. But first, let's hear from Ed Hawkins. He's a climate scientist who works for the National Centre for Atmospheric Science and the University of Reading in the Meteorology Department. He's famous for the Climate Stripes image and Climate Lab book, the blog that he hosts. Here he is in one of our Hay Levels, describing the fundamentals of climate change. People have been long fascinated by the weather. Here in the UK, we have weather records stretching back over 250 years. People have wanted to know what's happening with the weather, the temperature, the rainfall, the winds, and how they vary from day to day and hour to hour. So we have these very long, detailed records of how the weather and our climate has changed. And when we look back over those 200 years, especially over the last 50 years, we see some rather dramatic changes. We see warming temperatures over the UK and around the world. Global temperatures have increased by over a degree since before the Industrial Revolution. And we only can say that because we have these long, detailed measurements. But it's not just our thermometers which are telling us that things have changed. The natural world is also telling us we have oak trees flowering earlier in the year. We are watching the Arctic melt away. The glaciers around the world are retreating because of the warming temperatures. We are seeing increased heavy rainfall events. We are seeing increased numbers of heat waves. And in the last few years, we've seen the coral reefs around Australia bleach and die. And these are all signals of our warming world. And the question is, why is this happening? And the main reason is our emissions of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. It traps heat in the atmosphere and warms the planet. And those carbon dioxide emissions are coming from our emissions of fossil fuels and our cutting down of the rainforests. And so we are causing these temperatures to rise. And in the future, we have a choice to make about the type of world we want to live in. If we continue to burn fossil fuels and produce more greenhouse gas emissions, we will continue to see temperatures rise and these impacts getting worse. Or if we manage to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions, we can stabilise the temperatures uh, and not experience such severe impacts. And those choices are down to us. Ed is one of the contributors to Transmission, a collaboration between the Natural Environment Research Council and the Hay Festival, to bring together creative artists and climate scientists to communicate ideas about climate change. You can see many of the short films that are made on our website and hear conversations between Andy Fryers, our sustainability director, and the artists and scientists involved on the Hay Player. And now to the matter of climate crisis in the time of coronavirus. Let's hear from Christiana Figueres and Tom Rivet Karnak, the co-authors of a book, The Future We Choose, Surviving the Climate Crisis, and co-hosts of the Outrage and Optimism podcast. Figueres was UN Executive Secretary for Climate Change, Rivet Karnak, a senior political strategist for the Paris Agreement. What we thought we would do is to touch on some of the issues around the coronavirus COVID-19, how that has swept around the world in the last few months, and in particular, how it has intersected with our collective attempts to deal with climate change. This year right now was supposed to be the year that the world pivoted its attention in a major way 
to dealing with the climate crisis. And of course, one of the impacts of coronavirus has been that the world's attention has been drawn away from that. So let's just start by getting into this issue. And I want to start by posing a question to you, Christiana, and I'm sure that we will knock this back and forth and have a bit of a discussion. But the other thing that's happened with coronavirus is that economic activity has dropped to a significant degree. And as a result of that, we are predicted this year to drop emissions by the largest margin in peacetime. In fact, I think I'll correct myself. I think it's the largest margin in history, even including Ever. the Second World War. Correct. Ever. Ever. So that's yes. a good thing, right? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Um, the shutdown of the global economy has led to many environmental, let's call them benefits, quote unquote, um, because, you know, we are seeing fish come back to the waterways, birds, bees, and and, and, and butterflies come back to gardens that remain unmowed. Uh, we have unusual mammals roaming around in urban areas. Um, and as you say, we have clear skies and a drop in emissions that goes way to 8% drop. That is unheard of, unprecedented, which is the most popular word right now is unprecedented because everything that we're observing is unprecedented. Um, but you know, Tom, what's interesting is um, that although at face value, all that is actually good news, it really is not to be celebrated because it's an unintended consequence of this economic paralysis. It is not a planned, structured, sustained effort of decarbonizing the economy. It's simply paralyzing the economy. And it has come at huge human cost, as we know. Thousands mm. of people who have lost their lives, millions of people who have already lost their livelihoods and likely many more before we begin to tick up on the economic uh, on, on the economic activities. So um, not something to be celebrated, but a very interesting reminder um, that it is possible. And as we know, whether we are able to continue the descent, because as you mentioned, Tom, this year, 2020, is the year that we were supposed to turn our attention to the climate. Uh, and, um, and as we say in our book, The Future We Choose, this is the beginning of the most important decade in human history. Because over this decade, we have to be able to get to one half of our emissions over the next 10 years. So yes, we will drop by eight. But the question then is, what happens next year? Will we continue to descend? Or will we have a huge uptake? And that depends on the recovery packages. Well, and of course, those are being put together at the moment. And the most recent edition of The Economist is very interesting. It has a piece on the cover that explains that the coronavirus crisis is not inherently good for the climate crisis and may well not contain any of the solutions, but that it could be. And actually, it could contain many of the seeds by which we could accelerate the solutions to the climate crisis, even though it's drawn our attention off in a different direction. And of course, what they're talking about there is the fact that given this massive hit that the economy has taken, 
There is now significant decision making which is going on in capitals all around the world around how we recover from this crisis. There will at some point be a vaccine to the coronavirus. That is one of the major differences between climate change and the coronavirus. Coronavirus is temporary. It might last for a few months. It could last for a few years. But in the end, we will find a vaccine and we will return to some form of normality, although that may be quite different. The climate crisis, if we don't deal with it in time, will be a permanent disruption that will change human life as we know it and increase suffering in a permanent way for people and for the natural world. But of course, what's happening now is policymakers are thinking, how do we recover out of the coronavirus crisis? And they're thinking about that from a range of fiscal measures, monetary stimulus measures, policy amendment measures. What needs to happen, Christiana, in order to ensure that the recovery of the coronavirus from the coronavirus can also get us on track to dealing with climate change? Yeah, that also is the word that I would like to underline, right? Because it's not diverting attention from, it's actually an and also scenario. And let's just step back for a second and realize why it is so important to be able to address both of these crises at the same time with the same uh, fresh injection of capital. And that is basically due to two factors. One is scale and the other is timing. So on the scale, we already know that there are at least 15 trillion US dollars that are going to be invested into the economy in order to recover and be able to spin the wheels of the economy again. If, and that could go up to 20 trillion if that, um, if that money is put into high carbon assets, high carbon sectors, high carbon companies, then there is no way that any policies and measures or efforts on decarbonizing the economy could possibly reach the impact that those $20 trillion going to have because they will dwarf any efforts on climate change. That is why it's important to make them overlap. And the second factor is timing. And I go back to this, which is we have to get to one half emissions over the next decade. And those 15 to $20 trillion are being right now allotted they are already being allocated and they will define the contours of the global economy for at least that decade. So for both of those reasons, scale and timing, we have to ensure that these so-called recovery packages don't recover the economy to where we were, high carbon intensity, but rather that it leaps, that it takes us on a leapfrog into a much lower um, carbon economy. Now, the good news thing here is um, that we already see quite a few countries moving in this direction. In the UK, because that's where you all are, um, in the UK, let's start there. There is a call from a group of major business leaders for the government to embrace a green recovery. And Prime Minister Boris Johnson has already made a very clear statement that the UK's commitment to delivering net zero emissions remains undiminished, quote unquote. Those are his very words. Now, across the channel in Europe, 180 business leaders, policymakers, and researchers have explicitly urged the EU to build the recovery package around the European Green Deal. And Spain, very recently, just released a draft law 
uh, banning all new coal, oil, and gas projects in order to establish the direction of the COVID-19 recovery effort. And this morning, quite excitingly, I just read that Canada, way over on the other side, um, uh, on the other side of the Pacific, Canada, over 207 signatories representing more than 2,000 on to support a resilient recovery. So it's very interesting that business understands, yes, they are all trying to figure out how do they come out of the crisis, how do they get their workers back um, into the performance and productivity levels that they had, but they are understanding that this shorter-term crisis, which is COVID, as Tom has explained, is not going to divert either the resources or the attention to climate, but rather to make those solutions converge. And the financial sector is equally um, on the same path with many different um, investment groups and, of course, the Net Zero Alliance uh, that uh, has been very vocal about this. They have uh, asset, um, uh, they have said under management of 4.6 trillion. And then the number one pillar of asset management, BlackRock, which just came out recently with a surprising statement. They uh, are the largest asset manager, $7.4 trillion of um, assets under management. They have pledged to punish the directors of the companies that they at least partially own who might fail to manage environmental risks this year. So all very clear signals of where most people want this to go. But still, the final decision will be taken by government and by multilateral institutions. So a, a lot of uh, recommendations, a lot of guidance being given by many stakeholders, but the decisions will be made uh, outside of those stakeholders. For a wider geopolitical context, let's hear from Nick Stern, the great economist, author of the Stern Report on the Economics of Climate Change. Here he is examining what the coronavirus experience might mean in terms of collaboration on climate change and biodiversity for the three major world trading blocs. I hope that Europe and China will take the opportunity of COVID and the opportunity of the climate crisis to work together in a much more uh, strong and constructive way than uh, we have seen. Because we have to see that uh, those crises of climate, COVID, biodiversity are intimately linked. Most of the uh, pathogens that affect humans uh, come in a zoonotic way, which means they come from animals. And what climate and biodiversity change do is they change dramatically the way in which wild animals, human animals, and uh, domestic animals come together uh, as groups and within those groups. And what you see is as we change those relationships so strongly through climate change and the, uh, and the great crisis in biodiversity, we see new forms of interaction. And that means new forms of viruses emerging, some of which will be nasty. And we've seen bird flu and swine flu and Ebola and HIV AIDS and MERS and SARS and now COVID-19, all in the recent past. So what we have to recognize 
is that if we want to tackle COVID, we have to tackle climate change and biodiversity at the same time. And these issues of global health and global climate are issues on which we should be able to get together, that we see, as it were, a common enemy, a shared enemy, and we can work against those together. I do think that Europe and China are starting to see that. So I do see that as an opportunity. I hope that the United States will eventually come. I mean, we have a general, we have a presidential election in the United States, of course, in November, and the change there could really uh, help enormously in bringing the world together around those two issues. There'll be conflicts about trade. There'll be conflicts about intellectual property rights. There'll be conflicts about investment. There'll be conflicts about security. So it's very important that we find at least some parts of our mutual relationship which can be positive and working together. And COVID, climate, biodiversity are huge challenges for humankind. And I would hope that they would be the shared challenge that could bring nations together. You can hear more from Nick Stern on the Imagina El Mundo pages of the website, a collaboration between El País, Sura and the Hay Festival to imagine the world in times of coronavirus. And now from Europe, China and America to Antarctica. And we're going back to the glaciers with which we started and a salient and incredibly powerful message from Gabriel Walker, the climate scientist and communicator. Antarctica is an extraordinary place. It's, it's a playground for scientists. It's actually an entire continent dedicated to peace and science. And the only way that you're allowed to have a base there is if you're doing science there. It's also the only place in the world where humans have never lived. They can't. There's no life support system. We couldn't survive there. So in a way, it's the closest you can get to space. But the science that's been going on in Antarctica has also told us some very important things about home. So if you go up on the high plateau, Antarctica has ice at the edges, but when you go into the middle, the ice is two, three miles thick. You're standing on an ice mountain, and when you're standing there, you, you have a altitude sickness. You can't quite breathe, and the air's thin and cold, and it's really an extraordinary place. But if you drill down into that ice mountain, that mountain has formed as year after year of snow has fallen and compacted and turned into ice. And as it did that, it trapped little bubbles of air. And if you drill down into the ice, you go back in time and you can pull out pieces of ancient air, air that's never been breathed by a living human being, air that's been trapped in the ice before humans even evolved. And if you get that air and you test it, you can see what the air looked like in the past. And that's how we know, that's how we know that there has never been a time in at least the last million years and probably longer when there's as much carbon dioxide and methane and nitrous oxide, the greenhouse gases that are causing our global warming. And it is amazing. You look in the ice core and you see it going naturally up a bit, down a bit, up a bit, down a bit, and then it soars. So that's how we know we've been changing our atmosphere. Antarctica has been a repository, a history book of these ancient pieces of air. I've actually, I smelt some. It smelt like normal air, but it still felt extraordinary somehow. But Antarctica is also the place where we can see signs of ice melting, the first really profound planetary scale changes that are telling us that we're changing our world. We can see ice shells that are shattering. And we can also see places where the ice shells hold back glaciers that are sitting on land, eager to slide, but are held back almost like a cork in a bottle. 
and when the ice shells shatter, those glaciers move faster. There are some parts of Antarctica, there's one part in particular, they call it the weak underbelly of the continent. There's a large, two massive glaciers there, they're sliding into the sea. We've now discovered that the land underneath them slopes inwards and the warm seawater is lapping up against the edges. So as, as the seawater gets in and melts the ice, it's going to go down and help the glacier to slide. And the news there is, it now looks as if that part of Antarctica inevitably is going to melt and raise sea levels by one and a half metres everywhere in the world. Now that's amazing too, because we think about melting ice in Antarctica, it feels like it's something that's dangerous for Antarctica. But the problem with that melting ice and that raising the sea level by one and a half metres on top of the other sea level rises that we're expecting is that we have built our cities by the coast. And now more than half of our amazing, more than 7 billion people on Earth live in cities. And you can't just pick up a city and move it up the hill. If you think about those awful scenes that we saw in the Asian tsunami or in Fukushima, when the water comes, it comes for everybody. It's the first big sign that we've made a change in our planet that's irreversible. And the important thing for me is that Antarctica doesn't really care. People think about saving the ice or saving the planet. But Antarctica has been warm before, it's been cold before, it doesn't really mind. But that ice will slide into the sea, will raise sea level, and anybody living on the coast will feel that rise. It's not about saving the planet, it's actually about saving ourselves. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hay Festival podcast, brought to you by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers. You can find hundreds more events about climate change, climate science, and indeed economics on the Hay Player archive on our website. And again, I urge you to have a look as well for the transmission climate change and creative artists collaborations on our website. Thank you.